0: My guest today is Professor Adina Roskies, who is Professor of Philosophy and Chair of the Cognitive Science Program and an affiliate of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Dartmouth College. Dr. Roskies' research interests lie at the intersection of philosophy and neuroscience and include philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, and ethics. He has co-authored a book with uh, Stephen Morse, A Primer on Criminal Law and Neuroscience. Welcome, Adina.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with um, one of your papers, Why Libet Studies Don't Pose a Threat to Free Will, in which you say Benjamin Libet's controversial papers on the neural basis of action and the relation between action and conscious intention have dominated discussions of the effects that neuroscientific understanding can have for our conception of ourselves as free and responsible agents. Uh, Before we get into it, uh, who exactly is Benjamin Libet?
1: Uh, He was a neuroscientist um, working, I believe, at UCSF. And uh, his primary work that has concerned philosophers was done in the 80s. And uh, he made certain claims about the relevance of that work for free will that have been accepted very widely and very uncritically for the most part and uh, have filtered down into public uh, conception of the problem. And I think that people have just deeply misunderstood the relevance of his work for questions about free will.
0: Hmm. Uh, so so, so free will, uh, to get the crisp definition uh, for that idea, so free will is the ability um, and we're talking about humans here, but it could be applied to animals as well, I would imagine. But the ability of a human to do uh, <laughs> to do things as he or she wants, right? Is that a CRISPR definition?
1: Um, that certainly wouldn't be the philosophical definition. Um, but let's just say it is the ability of humans to uh, act in a way that is... Uh, self-generated and yes, I think in accordance with their intentions um, and uh, you know, there, there are a, a bunch of philosophical issues re- uh, involving how to best understand the concept that I, I'm afraid can't be discharged in a sentence or two.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, so Libet's work, uh, as you say, um he, he uh, sort of concluded that um, based on some of the experiments uh, he had done sort of concluded that uh, we don't really have free will.
1: He thought his experiments uh, pretty much ruled out the possibilities for free will because his interpretation of his experiments was that our brain decided to do things before we did and so Mm. we weren't really the ones making the decisions to act in particular ways
0: could you describe the the experiment um experiments that he did
1: yeah the the most um i guess the most consequential one and the one that most people know about is he asked people to spontaneously move their fingers or their wrists um while he was recording brain signals eeg signals from their scalp Mm. and Uh, At the same time that they were doing these, what he classified as free movements uh, or freely willed movements, they were also looking at a dot going around a clock face and making a mental note of the time at which they uh, had the urge or or formed the intention to move. Hmm. Um, And then he looked at the brain signals preceding these movements and uh, tried to coordinate that with the time at which they felt the urge to move move and he found that there were brain signals that were discernible uh, well before people reported willing to move
0: how much how much before
1: um several hundred milliseconds so for the most part the brain signals uh, in a signal that's called the readiness potential, start about, it's, it's quite variable, but uh, approximately 500 milliseconds before people move. And the time at which they reported willing to move was about 200 milliseconds before the time at which they moved.
0: Is it, is it measurable to that level, though? Uh, so if I understand this correctly, uh, the, the person himself is uh, is determining, uh, so the, the dot going around the, the clock phase, um, he or she is saying, this is when I decided, right? Is it?
1: Right, they're just saying, when I decided to move, the dot was at three or something yeah. like that, yeah.
0: Okay. And so there could be errors in it, I would imagine, as well, right? It's, it's less than a second that we are talking about.
1: Sure. there There's a wide variability if you look at individual, uh, you know, on individual trials, if you look at the answers people give. And uh, that's, I think, one of the problems is that it's really unclear uh, what the error range is, um, I think that it's been replicated pretty uh, pretty robustly that people tend to answer approximately 200 milliseconds before they move. And it's also been replicated that they um, show these readiness potentials well before that. Um, so I think that the basic finding isn't in question. It's a, The question is, what does that finding mean? How do you interpret that finding? Hmm. Um so, yeah, and I they, think, you know, there, there, are many, there are many issues here about noise and, and everything. But even if you put those things aside and you accept the basic empirical findings, I think there are uh, real issues in interpretation. And I think that the way in which people have interpreted it are um, mistaken in terms of the, the relevance for the free will question.
0: And so so from my own understanding, Arena's so the measurement here is that when the person says um, he decided to move the finger, mm-hmm. um five hundred milliseconds before that you can actually see the activity in the brain. Is that the idea?
1: Right. More it's more like three hundred on average, but yeah. So, you know, significantly before in terms of you know time, there's a signal in the brain. Um I can give you a whole variety of reasons that this is problematic. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know if you want me to do it right now.
0: I mean, you know, just uh, without knowing a lot about it at the intuitive level, I can think of many. Um, Either the person has to be aware of uh, something uh, in the brain, And the the person in the experiment is probably a poor judge of uh, when and what things have happened, really. And we are not talking about long, long time, uh, time intervals. So so what are your objections to this?
1: Um, So there are a number of objections about, first of all, whether this is even the kind of experimental paradigm that tests something like free action or free willing. Uh, yeah. You're being instructed to do this very bizarre task. Um, and it is a bizarre task because uh, in normal in normal life, we're not typically reporting on the time at which we become conscious of some mental decision. Hmm. And, uh, and we're actually not very good at doing that. And uh, so people who, who've done the task, I think, find it, weird and it's not at all clear that they're doing a good job at this kind of reporting but moreover because it's so weird it it clearly isn't the kind of thing that we normally are doing when we act in ways in which we're acting you know presumably freely Um, but i think the the biggest uh problem with this is that the signal that is measured from the brain the readiness potential is a signal that only emerges when you average many trials together, um, or it's only clearly emerging when you average many trials together time lot to the action um, mm-hmm. and it has been standardly interpreted as a signal that starts when uh, the this this average trace deviates from baseline but um, and, and the interpretation is that at the point at which it deviates from Baseline, the brain has already decided something, um, but I think that that's a completely uh, mistaken way of thinking about it. Because in fact, uh, what is much more likely is that what you're seeing is a decision process that ter- yeah. that culminates. The decision is made just prior to moving, or around the time that people become conscious of moving, um, right. and it's an artifact of sampling. If you always time lock things to movements, you're only sampling these epochs in which people actually move. And so if, the, if it is actually a decision process, then it's necessarily going to create this kind of uh, ramping signal, even though there may be no such ramp in the real uh, individual instances. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so this, this idea that your brain is making a decision at the onset, I think, is the fundamental problem uh, there's no reason to think that what that signal is reflecting in the aggregate is a process that culminates in you and your brain at the same time, making a decision, which is exactly what someone who's not a dualist would think.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So, so mechanistically, that makes a lot of sense to me for me to move my finger. I have to prepare the system to do that. And, and, that preparation would require um mental activity, I would imagine and so so there, there are two questions i guess one is when does the mental activity start and and secondly one is when do i when do I become conscious of that mental activity uh, this could be instinctual actually i don't necessarily have to be conscious if if this is something that I do on a routine basis. Uh, I don't necessarily have to be conscious about it, right? It could be an instinctual thing, but there is a electrochemical signal that needs to happen for that to work.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do. I think that typically when we act uh, volitionally, when we use our will, we are conscious of what we're deciding, um, but I don't need to be conscious of the process that is the process of decision-making what I have to be conscious of is the decision. Um, Mm. And this kind of experiment is asking you to become conscious of something other than the decision. In a sense, you're, you're, you're being conscious of having an intention to do something, which is not the same as conscious of the decision to do something. And, um, so i think that's one process problem but the other problem is thinking that that there is this time at which uh the you know the process ha- has an onset rather than thinking much more holistically of uh people acting in the face of ongoing neural activity i mean your brain is always doing stuff and that there may be uh no set time before your decision at which um or or you know in a, in the a process of deciding at which your the deviation from baseline always starts um and if right. you are averaging all these things together you're going to get something that looks like a ramp but it may not in in fact look anything like that in individual trials
0: hmm. and so so people sort of like this and it it got into popular press so to speak uh, so so what's the status quo now based on uh, your research, Adina? I mean, what do you believe? Uh, it, does free will exist?
1: Oh, I, I do believe that free will exists. I'm not sure that, um, you know, that the folk uh, ideas of what free will requires are correct. So I think that there are a lot of uh, misconceptions people have about free will, like we have to be acting outside the causal nexus if we're, you know, if we act. Um, if determinism is true, for instance, then we can't have free will. I think that's a mistake. Um, so I think that free will consists in our exercising certain kinds of capacities. Sometimes it's possible that we may not have those capacities, or that our our uh, will may be impeded from the outside. But for the most part, I think that we have those capacities and that we can have free will, whether or not determinism is true. Um, and I think that really what uh, you want to think about are what kinds of capacities are required for you know, free will and what many people think hinges on it, which is a moral responsibility. Um, so... You know, right now I'm finishing up a paper with Aaron Sugar that's going to, at least I hope, be published in Trends in Cognitive Sciences, um, which sort of reviews the recent literature on the readiness potential and tries to put, um, sort of change the way in which people have viewed this whole literature. Um, but if you think of decision-making as a stochastic uh process, which has been the model that has been really effective in psychology and neuroscience in all sorts of other domains, then what you would expect to see uh, that would just fall out of this model is an RP. uh, But the the RP, the beginning of the RP is essentially an artifact, and it doesn't signify the beginning of a decision process. It just Mm -hmm. comes out of a certain kind of way of analyzing data when there is a decision making uh model underlying it and so if you're making a decision in the face of having no evidence and no reasons which you have in the libet paradigm uh then you would expect to see exactly uh, an rp when you when you take eeg data and average it the way libet did
0: yeah. and, and so so this RP, uh, what does RP stand for? Some sort of potential. Readiness potential, yeah. Uh, readiness potential. So is there a is there an intensity measure there when you when we measure that? Uh,
1: there is an amplitude to it, if that's what you mean.
0: Uh, amplitude, yeah. yeah. So so do we see sort of different amplitudes in different sort of situations? You do.
1: I mean, no. there are certain things that seem to modulate the amplitude. So attention and anticipation and uh, modulate the amplitude. Planning seems to um, novelty or uncertainty may. There's some some reports um, to that effect. So there, there are many things that seem to affect it. Um, but there's, you know, to my mind, no evidence yet that Thinking of it as just an an effect of the analysis um, procedure that's used uh, is is the right way to think of it. That you know, I don't think of it as a real signal in the brain that's causally uh, efficacious in the description of what it is to initiate an an action.
0: So 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 our current viewpoint and there has been some uh, ideas around free will out of quantum mechanics uh, you know the many worlds interpretation and if you trace that back uh, you know there has been some arguments that you cannot really have free will in any situation um so so from a neuroscience perspective uh, our, our uh, at least our thinking right now is that free will does exist. Uh, people make decisions uh, on their own, um, and and so what is the you know sort of the the best experiment from a neuroscience perspective uh, that establishes free will?
1: Um, so I, I want to, I think, correct you. I, I don't think that the neuroscience view is at all. Um, some sort of consensus that we have free will. I think probably most neuroscientists think we don't have free will. And I think Mm. that's because they don't understand the philosophy underlying free will. I think people think if something is mechanistic, then it is uh, determined and unfree. And um, I think that it's a mistake to think determinism means lack of freedom. I also think that it's a mistake to think mechanism means determinism. And so, uh I think that there's just lots of avenues in which you could maintain free will even if our brains are mechanistic or uh physics is deterministic, but I should also note that there are, you know, interpretations of quantum mechanics that are indeterministic and there are t- interpretations that are deterministic. And so even physics has not decided about the question of determinism. And I don't think that's something that neuroscientists will be able to do a better job at. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I I can see the mechanistic aspect. So just because something is mechanistic, uh, I can understand that argument, that you cannot really say uh, things are predetermined. Uh, But deterministic for me uh, maybe I'm not understanding it properly. Deterministic means uh, essentially there is no variability in, in future expectations. Uh, in, in other words, you have only one path to go. Uh, in that sense, um, I, I don't know how free will could. Sorry. A- maybe I'm not understanding. You know the the, the word determinism in the neuroscience context.
1: Uh, the the word deterministic in neuroscience is exactly what it is in uh, philosophy, or it should be anyway, which is that,
0: yeah,
1: yeah if you knew everything, uh, the c- complete state of the world and all of the governing equations, you could describe the world at any other point, you would know exactly the way the universe would be in the future mm-hmm. or the past. Um so yeah, but there is a very large uh, and um, excellent body of philosophical work on positions called compatibilism that that argue that free will can exist even if determinism is true. Hmm.
0: And so, if X and Y are fixed, uh, Adina, so is is the is the a uh, free will part of this that is that you can trace a path from x to y in different ways even though x and y are sort of fixed
1: no no it's that what it is to for someone to move forward in time uh yeah. if it engages the right kinds of decision making capacities then then they are exercising their capacities to will and freely doing so i mean there there's nothing unfree about the laws of nature on this view
0: hmm. but if the future is fixed even if i don't do anything that future state would happen right no
1: it means it means <laughs> that if the future is fixed then it's only fixed in the way it is because you do or do not do something.
0: Hmm. Okay, okay. And so, so this is where you know uh, this might be a sort of an engineering confusion in the sense that, um, and so when we when we do economic models, you know, we think about future as evolving stochastically. And our decision models use dynamic programming when we have sequential decisions. And so there is nothing deterministic, at least from an economics perspective, about the future. And so, so this is where when I think of a deterministic future, I think of it differently. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, I that mean, the, 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 the
1: difference way. here, and I think the mistake that you're making is that you're assuming that your stochastic input is in fact stochastic, but if determinism is true, then what you call noise is actually, uh, you know, determined.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: so, right, it's, the the real question is, is there real noise in the universe or uh, is that noise, what looks to us to be noise, um, just more deterministic <laughs> signal and, you know, I don't think that anyone in neuroscience and probably nobody in experimental physics can answer that question. And I think the question really ultimately ends up being a question for theoretical physics.
0: Right. So, so in that sense, you say noise is pre-programmed. Um, it, it looks stochastic, but in some sense, it's evolving in a pre-programmed fashion
1: if determinism is true yeah that would mm-hmm. that is what would necessarily be the case right if determinism is true then what we look at as noise in our measurements isn't really noise it's real you know it's the effects of all the laws of nature uh evolving um, but because we don't under- we don't know those laws and we don't know the precise state of the universe at any given time we can't identify that as those effects. We identify it as noise.
0: So so, so you argue, even if determinism is true and noise is pre-programmed in that sense, uh, free will still exist.
1: I believe that that is possible, yes. I mean, I, I think that there are lots of philosophical positions in which it just doesn't matter whether or not determinism is true to answer the question of whether somebody is free or not free.
0: Hmm. Um, I remember reading in in the paper, there's a distinction between free will and free won't, right? So going back to the experiment, you could ask if the person decides not to move the finger. And then there is a distinction between the two. So
1: Libet Libet suggested that, uh, you know, he thought he had ruled out the possibility of free will because uh, our brains decide before we do, but he thought that it was possible that we could salvage something like free will through what he called free won't, which is the idea that in the 300 or so milliseconds between the point at which he thought our brains decided, and the point at which uh, we um, willed something, we could change our minds and maybe preserve our, you know, our free will by being able to reject the decisions that our brains had made. Um, But it turns out that uh, free, you know, when people decide not to do something, it turns out that the brain signals, um, show the same kinds of timing. So, uh, Mm. basically there's no, there's no way that you could salvage free will from the libit with, with the Libet idea of free won't. Mm.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, And then we'll take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll talk about your agency and intervention. Okay, sounds good. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, um, I Edin. Mean, I want to um, go into one of your papers, uh, a little bit dated 2015, um, entitled Agency and Intervention. Uh, you said novel ways to intervene on brain function raise questions about agency and responsibility, and you discuss whether direct brain interventions, in particular deep brain uh, stimulation, pose a threat to agency in individual cases or to our general conceptualization of what it is to be a responsible agent. So, So, so how do you define agency in this context?
1: Well, agency is a philosophical uh concept that I think nobody has really managed to define you know? <laughs> uh and part of the project I'm involved in is trying to get a better handle on what it is but you know it it's related to the topic of free will i mean it has it's about the ability to act and um you know with respect to humans the- the ability to act in ways that uh Secure their uh, well-being, promote their good and their interests. Um, you know, essentially la- allow people to live uh, full and flourishing lives. And um, part of that involves, you know, being able to be responsible members of society, et cetera. Um, so the question is, uh, you know, if someone is messing around with your brain how does that does that affect your agency does it undermine it does it leave you unfree or does it leave you somehow compromised as an agent and um the paper explores various ways and which it might and doesn't uh and um i think just Pointed me on a, a path to think more deeply about what agency is and how we might be able to um, get a, a way of uh, getting a handle on the kinds of effects on agency that mm-hmm. neural interventions might pose.
0: Physical physical intervention. So uh, so so is agency an entity different from the individual? <laughs> um or is it uh is it a characteristic
1: uh i think of it as a you know some kind of description of the individual's uh capacities to be an agent right so i'm an agent my dog is an agent but we're very different kinds of agents and i'm interested in how to characterize the differences <laughs> in the kinds of agents that we are you know we can both yes. uh Make decisions, procure food to a certain extent, um, you know, chase things we want, uh, but we're different in our decision making capabilities and our some of our social abilities and other ways of navigating the world. So yeah. that's really what I'm I'm interested in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um it's uh somewhat of a strange concept. Sorry. So uh, no worries. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the, uh, the great uh, um, rock band, Pink Floyd, uh, there's a song that goes something like, there's somebody in my brain and that's not me. Um, you know, it, it, the, people seem to struggle uh, in some sense with their, with their brain, with their decision-making processes So philosophically and conceptually, um, is there a difference between one's brain and oneself?
1: Um, I mean, in certain ways, yes, and in certain ways, no. Uh, I think one's self is certainly uh, constituted in large part by one's brain. Um, You know, you wouldn't be a self if you had no brain. Uh, but there are certain aspects of the self that aren't just brain. I mean, and if you're, if you believe in embodiment, for instance, um, then you're a different person. If you've got a body than if you don't have a body. Um, And uh, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, you can look to the brain for some information about the self, um, but we don't really understand that relationship very well. Uh, But I don't think that you can sort of reduce the self to the brain in, or at least it's not entirely clear to me that you could reduce the self to the brain alone.
0: Yeah, so, you know, (laughs) uh, this is obviously not true, but you know, one one could think about the brain as a computer and uh, and the individual essentially using that computer and in the era of artificial intelligence we are you know increasingly seeing the computer becoming more intelligent and telling the human what to do uh, and so is that relationship between the brain as sort of a uh, a machine and the individual something greater than that uh does that relationship work uh for for a, from a neuroscience perspective
1: i guess i don't understand how uh, how the uh individual could use the machine of our brains without it being i mean we are not separate from our brains right i am separate from my computer and i can act on it and to some degree i can act on my own brain i mean i can Choose to you know think about various things, which is essentially part of my brain affecting other parts of my brain. But, um, but I am not separate from my brain such that I can use it like a tool.
0: Yeah. So that that is that. Um, I just you know uh, you could think about it uh, different ways. So so deep brain stimulation um you say uh, so this is uh, essentially electrodes uh, what exactly how, how how is deep brain stimulation done uh
1: yes the neurosurgeon implants electrodes into parts of your brain usually subcortical structures and uh and then the electrodes are tied at, are connected to a stimulator a power source that uh stimulates the neural tissue at Certain frequency, certain amplitude, and um, changes the way in which those circuits function in ways that are poorly understood, but dem- demonstrably effective at ameliorating certain kinds of symptoms. So uh, it's a you know very effective FDA-approved uh, um, treatment for otherwise intractable Parkinson's disease, and. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are undergoing deep brain stimulation as we speak. Mm. Um, so it is happening. And then, you know, there are case reports of kind of strange effects that these stimulators might have on people, um, you know, changing them from rational to psychotic or changing the contents of their desires or turning them into. Uh, people who have compulsive gambling problems or uh, changing their personality or their mood so all these things have been reported um, and the question is both why does that happen and um, what neuroethically should we make of it you know how how should we think about uh the these kinds of consequences what are their ethical implications so that's really what what this project is trying to consider
0: yeah so 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 this is tr- truly a f- sort of a, a physical intervention of the brain and uh we see some beneficial effects uh, in disease states like parkinsons and um, the question here is, is uh, Is that is that an ethical thing to do? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, that's, in, in some ways, I think that question has been answered, <laughs> because yeah. these people without the treatment are so compromised that it's unethical to leave them in that state without, you know, if, if we can do something about it. Um, but there are sometimes side effects that are unforeseen and uh and hard to you know it's just not obvious how we should think about them ethically or or how to weigh those negative effects against the positive effects of the treatment and um so that's those are the the kinds of questions it's it's really you know not just what to make about the fact that we are affecting uh people by intervening in their brain function, which you might think is, you know, something that all other things considered equal, we shouldn't be doing, Um, but also how to think about the sometimes negative side effects and um, how to weigh treatment decisions in, in the face of those kinds of side effects.
0: Is the treatment effect here sort of permanent, or this is something that they do over and over again?
1: It is a chronic, I mean, you you basically continually stimulate, and if you turn off the stimulator, all of the um, motor effects or symptoms of Parkinson's return immediately. Hmm.
0: Okay. Okay, And so so do we pick up uh, sort of holistic uh, side effects like personal change in personality and things like that because of this?
1: What do we pick up? What what do you
0: mean by that? Uh, You know, does the you know, going back to sort of the agency question, um, do we do we see sort of, you know, things like personality changes and things like that because of the treatment?
1: Yes, that that does occur um it's not clear to you know what in what percentage i think there's no real database that keeps track of the frequency of occurrence of these things but there're certainly case reports that re- report all kinds of sometimes you know bizarre <laughs> kinds of effects that are really philosophically interesting and and um a, a little bit disturbing i mean there's this fascinating case study of a man who had very eclectic musical tastes and then when they started deep brain stimulation he only wanted to listen to johnny cash and (laughs) that was his you know under stimulation it was the only uh thing that he had any desire to hear and then at some point they stopped stimulation because they needed to uh, adjust the um electrodes or something that for so so medical reasons, they stopped simulation for a period. And all of his old interests came back. And then when they restarted, he went back to wanting only Johnny Cash.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so so your conclusion in the paper then, you say you don't see evidence that these interventions constitute a global challenge uh, to the concept of agency. But you also say that therapeutic approaches could be improved with a more nuanced, multidimensional view of agency. Um, So what do you mean there?
1: Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think some people think that just the mere fact that we can physically change someone's agency um, suggests that agency isn't real in some way. And I reject that. I think... It doesn't bother me at all that that agency has a physical basis in the brain. Um, But I think that we could undermine aspects of people's agency because of some of these effects and um, with a better understanding both of how stimulation influences agency and uh, what aspects of agency are uh, essential and what the you know ethical implications are of of messing around with various aspects of agency, we would be able to better uh, design our therapies and better deal with um, you know unforeseen uh, effects of our therapies.
0: Yeah, I mean this has uh, implications, right? So you know. Um, if I understand this correctly, you know, the typical FDA process, uh, looking for a therapeutic index that can be more, you know, easily measured, um, something like this, the, the therapeutic index need to take into account variety of other things that are typically not there, right? Um, the side effects that you talked about mm-hmm. and, and how that could impact needs to be taken into account uh, before the therapy could be approved?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know that I want to go that far. I think that the fact that the therapy is imp- ha- has been approved has helped very many people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the therapy might be improved by paying attention to these side effects and trying to understand, you know, what particular confluence of technology and individual neuroanatomy might lead to these side effects, um, we might be able to avoid them better in the future. Uh, so yeah. I don't know that I'd want to advocate that any FDA approval would have to, you know, be beholden to, to this working out. But, um, you know, but we got funding from the NIH to try to Study this and measure the effects of deep brain stimulation on on agency. Hmm.
0: I want to go into another paper, Edina. So, neurotechnologies for mind reading: prospects for privacy. You say neuroimaging techniques provide unprecedented access to a variety of information about the brain, including to some extent the contents of thoughts. Um, and so. So, so, you know, we have seen, we all seen these pictures, right? Uh, Neuroimaging technologies are improving and uh, the, the privacy issue here is if we, if I understand this correctly, we can start attaching more importance to this, this images and uh, perhaps we can start to interpret them <laughs> um, uh, possibly, right? Is that the issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do in research settings yeah. uh, interpret them. And the question is how how well can we interpret them and what fineness of grain can we give to the contents that we are assigning to these images? And, um, you know, I think we're far from being able to read people's thoughts in any kind of... Uh, you know, fine, fine-grained fine way, anything that would count as mind reading, but we're a lot closer to it than I thought we would be 10 years ago. So, you know, methods have improved remarkably. There are a lot of new innovations that allow you to assign content, uh, I think, much better than um, we used to be able to, and uh, it's not entirely clear how much better we'll get in the future.
0: Yeah, so I mean, if it is just complexity that is um, um, that is preventing us from getting there um, to, to completely read somebody's mind, that then turns out, out to be sort of a problem that can be solved uh, with better technology over time, right? So do you think we are on a path to to ultimately fully able to interpret those images as, as reading reading the mind?
1: Um, I, no, I mean, it, you know, I would say in the limit, if you yeah. knew everything about, uh, you know, if you could get really, really fine-grained information, um, we could do a whole lot better. But there, you know, I think big theoretical... Uh, barriers still for trying to translate you know there's quite a bit of individual variability for instance Um, and even though there's quite a bit more uh, commonality than I might have thought I still think that that there are lots of barriers to being able to read minds in, you know, some kind of magical way. Um, so, I you know, I don't expect we're ever going to get to the point where you can put somebody in the scanner and just read their thoughts out. But uh, But I think that we'll be able to tell a lot more than I might have thought we could 10 years ago.
0: So... Yeah, I mean, the the risk there is if, if you s- sort of look at uh, unsupervised machine learning type techniques where we can put patterns into buckets uh, using those types of techniques. So even though we don't precisely be able to read somebody's thoughts, yeah, we might be able to get, you know, sort of a general, general bucket, so to speak, where the thoughts might reside. And... And if that is possible, it has a lot of implications, right? Um, and so so that's one of your concerns in terms of privacy. If technology advances and we can, if not precisely, but generally say uh, what category the thoughts might belong, uh, that has a lot sort of applications and, and concerns.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: So, so I want to um, look at one other thing. Um, and, and this is uh, a paper in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, on Neuroethics. Um, neuroethics focuses on ethical issues raised by our continually improving understanding of the brain, as we just talked about, and by consequent improvements in our ability to monitor and influence brain function. Um, so, so there is sort of an internal concern um how do we how do we influence the brain uh with external force and then there is sort of this other concern that we talked about that uh just uh just reading um we could actually make some decisions so there is a there are concerns around reading and writing i guess of the brain right
1: yeah that's one way of putting it yeah you know
0: and so, so, where do you see the biggest challenges from policy perspective here in neuroethics? What would you, what, what would you suggest? You know, policymakers should be really thinking about here.
1: Um, well, I, I actually think that the maybe the biggest challenge is to broaden neuroethics um, to extend to to a greater slice of neuroscience. I mean, there's quite a bit of neuroscience that goes on that has a lot of ethical implications. uh, And, you know, from all all kinds of human neuroscience, but even uh, neuroscience on animals, for instance. And um, I think that neuroethics and bioethics are sort of relegated for the most part. Uh, they're done by people who tend to not be the same people who do the neuroscientific work. Um, And I think that there's been a push recently to integrate uh, more neuroethical thought into everyday bread and butter neuroscience, which has been uh, really, I think valuable for policymakers and for the scientists involved and for the neuroethicists involved. And um, i 'd like to see more of that. I think that uh, there are lots of neuroethical issues in science all over the place, and only a, a small fraction of them are really being uh, explored and explored in conjunction with the people doing the science
0: hmm. yeah i, I don 't know a lot about this, but you know um, do you see this sort of a continuous function, in other words? Uh, if it is continuous, you can say, you know, this is the limit beyond which you cannot go. But if it is a discontinuous sort of a step function change, then um, it, it has different implications for policy, right? You know, you have to say you have to stay at level zero. You can never think about level one. Uh, where, where do you think these ethical issues will ultimately end up in? Um, we, we see the technology developing quite fast uh, in, in many areas. Um, it doesn't, at least from uh, on from the surface, doesn't look like uh, the brain is so special that we will never be able to figure that out. Granted, it's a it's a very complex organ, uh, but presumably, in you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years, our understanding of that will be a lot higher. Uh, and if you understand it properly, then, you know, all the privacy goes out of the window. Uh, you have to think about the individual's freedom, uh, all of that stuff. It all gets gets interconnected, right? Uh, so do you see this as gradually increasing or do you see that we will go from sort of level zero to level one and all hell breaks loose?
1: Um. Well, I I think as we learn more, uh, different ethical questions arise, and sometimes you can foresee what they are before we get there, and it's nice to think about them before we're faced with them in real life. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I actually never, th- I, I think that it's unlikely that we will really ever understand everything about the brain, um, but we will def- definitely understand far more than we do now, and Um, You know, I I think it's important to keep the neuroethical questions in our sights and, you know, not just get so taken up by enthusiasm about the, you know, the next exciting thing we're learning that we forget to think about how what we're learning has implications for, you know, people and for future people and for the ways in which we uh, structure our society. And I think we need to think about those things.
0: Mm. So, so, in conclusion, Adina, you know, if you look forward five, ten years, um, fairly tactically, five, ten years, where do you see the biggest risks? Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, neurotechnologies, we talked about neuroethics, uh, we talked about uh, deep brain stimulation. Um, you know, m- many of these technologies coming to the fore. Uh, where, where do you think? You know, are the biggest risks? Um, for humanity are in this same.
1: <laughs> the biggest risks for humanity are, are I don't think, uh, at the moment in neuroscience. I think they're in climate science. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess, you know, the, the biggest risk, I think, is in public misunderstanding of science generally, but mm. in neuroscience as well. And I think that this last year has really shown how deeply mistrustful people are of science and how deeply they fail to understand what science is really about and, and how important it, uh, it is to sort of keep us from self-destructing. And so, um, I think I'm, I'm, there's not, a, not an area in neuroscience that I think is, you know, going to put us all at risk, but I think that maybe, um, like blowback from science deniers and uh, you know people who are anti-scientific because you know understanding the brain might make you for instance question uh, teachings of the religious leaders or something Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that's a much bigger risk in my view that uh, people will reject brain science because uh, they don't like what it might say to them and you know that I, I, I am not saying that you cannot uh, have religious views and be scientific um, but I think that people uh, tend to think that that it's an either or choice and I think that might be the most dangerous thing
0: just one more quick thing. Uh, I just want to get your perspective on this. Is, is there anything from a neuroscience perspective, anything structural um, about that? Uh, in other words, your thought processes, uh, um, you know, at the very highest level, let's say you categorize uh, people into more prone to using scientific process, data analysis and those um, who are less willing to do so, um, is there anything structural about the brain or it's all software? Uh,
1: I don't know that I understand the question. I mean, there's obviously a ton of stuff that's structural about the brain. Um, I don't think we, uh, you know, I mean, there's structure at at many levels. I'm not sure there's a clear distinction between hardware and software in the brain. but. but we don't understand what distinguishes people who are pro-science and anti-science at a, at a brain level. Um, I I guess my point was that, uh, I think the biggest threats aren't coming from the science. They're coming from, uh, science denial.
0: You know,
1: I, I think we have in science, uh, both ways to to foresee bad things that might occur um, and try to counteract them, and we also have ways of making people's lives better. Um, that you know, unless those things are pursued, uh, we we won't be doing that. And I and I think that that's a much bigger threat than the kinds of threats that or the kinds of problems that might arise from our continued attempts to try to make people's lives better.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Irina. Thanks so much for spending time.
1: Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks.